Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 8. What does injustice have to do with me? So I'm going to use this episode to toot my own horn for a bit, as my latest book has finally been published. It's called What Does Injustice Have to Do With Me? Engaging Privileged White Students with Social Justice. Published by Roman and Littlefield, available now. And while it's a little unfortunate that COVID-19 and social distancing has made book release events sort of impossible for the present time, you can still go right now to Amazon.com and purchase the book in softcover, hardcover, or Kindle form. Or if you prefer to support your local bookstore, which I totally understand, and it's more important than ever during this period of social distancing, then I'm sure if you give them the title and the author, they can order it for you and possibly even ship it to your door. All the information for doing all of that is on the podcast website at www.ed-infinitum.com. This episode, I'm giving you a taste of what the book is about, to whet your appetite so you'll really want to go out and get it. I'm rebroadcasting my March 24th, 2018 TEDx talk at TEDxED DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. This was actually the same day as the March for Our Lives, so D.C. was really alive with people concerned with social justice in all kinds of forms. So presented here in unedited format, is that TEDx talk, which set me on the path to research and write the book. I regret that there's a lot of echo in the audio. I'm just not a skilled enough sound editor to fix that, although if any of my listeners want to volunteer a few tips, I'm all ears. Please send me an email at edinfinitumpodcast at gmail.com. The title of the talk, like the book's title, is What Does Injustice Have to Do With Me? Enjoy! So I want you to imagine that you're an English teacher at a high-powered suburban high school like the one where I've taught for 18 years. A place where test scores are off the charts, where most of your students are white, and almost all go on to attend a competitive college after graduation. Now I want you to imagine you're into your third hour of grading the final exam essays. Your family's long since gone to bed, you're on your third cup of coffee, and you've been saving for last the essay from your strongest student writer as a sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Ask any teacher, it's one of the tricks we use to survive our grading load. And so you begin reading only to find that your light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train because your student has written the following. Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the greatest speakers of his day. His words started massive movements and changed the world we live in. However, when his speeches are viewed by high schoolers in rich white towns like ours, they are not effective. His words no longer inspire courage or great emotion, but instead are merely boring. Because the speeches are not tailored to us, they are not effective for this audience. Just as adults reading Curious George are not entertained or taught morals. This was a real essay I received. Clear organization, solid grammar, by all assessments, a successful essay. And yet, here I was, trying to follow in the footsteps of great progressive educators like Paolo Freire, who aimed to engage students in the study of injustice such that they could develop the tools to combat it. And here was my star student writer, and the injustice he was attempting to combat was that I was making him read Martin Luther King. The irony hit me like a brick between the eyes. Another thing Freire wrote about was the importance of engaging student anger as a learning tool. But my students, in fact, too many of my students, weren't so much angry at the injustices they were reading about as having to read about them to begin with. 
Now, not all of my students are rich and or white. There are plenty of ways in which gender and sexual orientation, the whole constellation of other factors conspire to create hierarchies of privilege, even in a school like mine. And it's not every student of mine who reacts with outrage when I attempt to engage them in reading the narratives of those who've been poorly served by our country's power structure. But a lot of them, a lot of them do. The comments I hear or read in some form or other regularly include, stop whining. Racism's a problem only because people keep talking about race. Not another book about poor black people in the South. It's tempting to dismiss this as youthful ignorance, but youthful ignorance isn't like a pair of blue jeans. It's not something we inevitably outgrow. And to dismiss it would also be to dismiss a very important message that my students are sending me, which is they don't feel engaged because they can't relate to the material. Now, I don't want you to think my students are heartless. They're some of the most compassionate, idealistic people you'll meet. I've seen them raise thousands of dollars for disaster relief and for cancer research. It's just that when it comes to issues of injustice, especially where race and injustice coincide, too many of them feel that injustice just has nothing to do with them. Now, this is a problem that goes well beyond the walls of just my school. And yet every conversation about education reform that you hear seems to be about how to improve learning conditions for minority students in urban settings, often economically disadvantaged, but I'm coming here today with a strange proposal, and that is that the success or failure of those efforts may well depend, at least in some part, upon something I've almost never heard anyone talk about in the public sphere, which is how to effectively reform the education of affluent white students in the suburbs. And by reform, I don't necessarily mean raising test scores. I mean raising students who are able to escape the gravity of privilege, which in some ways is as difficult to escape the gravity of poverty, and see themselves as change agents in creating a more just society. That kind of goal falls right through the cracks of most of our systems assessing education. If you were just to look at the English and math scores of my students, you wouldn't see a problem. But if you were to apply some sort of social justice metric, we'd be a failing school. And this is a big problem. One that I argue we need to address if we're going to solve problems not just elsewhere in education, but if I may be so bold, in our country and in our world. Because students like mine, they grow up. And while it's not inevitable that they'll shed their youthful ignorance, it is pretty much inevitable that they're going to be disproportionately representing themselves as decision makers and power brokers in our society. Nationwide, students from affluent schools are more than twice as likely to go on to college, especially competitive ones. The class of 2017 at Harvard, just 11% of schools where students were uh, graduated on to Harvard accounted for over a third of Harvard's class of 2017. In fact, 6% of that class came from just 10 high schools. The 115th Congress, it's the most diverse one we've ever had, and yet 78% of the membership is white, and over half have a net worth of at least a million dollars. 90% of Fortune 500 CEOs are white, and so on. Now, I'm not saying this is a good thing, or that we shouldn't be working to try and change it. We've made incredible strides in diversifying our country's leadership, and we should continue to do so. And I'm not saying the only people who go on to make change in our society are Ivy League graduates, or Congress people, or CEOs. But we'd be lying to ourselves if we denied the disproportionate influence that students like mine will go on to have. And it makes you wonder if some of those students 
who grew up being so incensed at having to read Martin Luther King might go on to become the kind of leaders who make real impactful policy decisions, absent empathy, based on inaccurate, even offensive stereotypes. Maybe you've heard of leaders like that? So you could see a suburban teacher's opportunity in trying to create a more enlightened white ruling class, but I think the mission of suburban education reform should be more ambitious. I'm talking about educating the next white ruling class to step aside and share the reins of power because it's in their self-interest. That's what I want to talk about today. Now, as a white guy who went to fancy schools myself, I don't have too much trouble getting inside the mindset of my privileged students. But I was also a scholarship student at those fancy schools. See, I grew up in this weird liminal space where my parents were highly educated, but financially, we often struggled to make ends meet. I'm white, with all the privileges that entails. But I'm also Jewish, and at the prep school where I attended, that meant getting swastikas carved into my locker. That meant getting the occasional anti-Semitic phone call. It's a prank. Or any of a dozen ways, much more subtle, which people like me were made to feel other and lesser than. Now, it's nothing like the pervasive oppression that so many Americans endure every day. But I think it was enough a pinprick, maybe, to help me become an ambassador between the realms of blind privilege and just semi-blind privilege. And I imagine many of us could be. There's a whole industry of courses and books designed to help white teachers become more effective with disadvantaged urban minority students. But I've never seen a book designed to help white teachers become more effective with affluent white students in the suburbs. That's why I'm in the middle of writing one. Are there any publishers watching this? Call me. I think too often, white teachers, and including some of my more shameful moments, me, want to rely upon people of color to take on the burden of educating white people for social and racial justice. I think too many of us on some level agree with my students who felt that injustice has nothing to do with us. That's why Peggy McIntosh's famous essay, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack of White Privilege, was so brilliant. What she did was construct systems of oppression not as we have this group of people who is disadvantaged, but rather we have this other group of people white people, white men, white heterosexual cisgender men, all four, we have too much advantage. See, constructing it that way makes people like me a part of the equation, and it makes it incumbent upon us to do something about it. That's the key to teaching, to reaching any student, helping them to see that this stuff in the textbook, or on the blackboard, or in the science lab, has something to do with them. That's the only way they'll learn. Small problem, though. A major thing that injustice has to do with students of privilege is that they benefit from it. Those luxurious suburban districts, they're the product of redlining. And those stellar college admission statistics owe at least something to the legacy system, you know, affirmative action for rich white people. And maybe some small part of my students' success academically owes something to the fact that they can walk through their neighborhoods at night wearing a hoodie and not be harassed by police. They can walk through their neighborhoods at all and not be harassed by police. So the usual approach in so-called social justice education, though, is holding up that sort of mirror to students' faces. And I don't think that's necessarily the most pedagogically or even psychologically sound approach. 
Think of all the research we've had in recent years about how confronting people with facts, no matter how accurate, that fly in the face of their deeply held convictions just makes them get more entrenched in those convictions. Like it or not, white fragility is something that teachers have to understand and recognize and work around. Just as teachers in less affluent schools may have to recognize that their students might not have had enough to eat for breakfast that morning. And teachers in schools like that sometimes know that they have to show up with bagels and orange juice if they want their students to be able to learn geometry that day. So here's what I try and show up with. Here's my bagels and orange juice. Yes, I'm Jewish. I can't escape the bagel analogies. Sorry. Okay, part one, the bagels. Yes, I teach my students about Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Cesar Chavez, but too often we only teach about civil rights leaders of color. Again, as if it were only their responsibility to make a more just world. So I also teach about figures like white lawyer David Vann, who helped out the SCLC in Birmingham, or activists like Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwimmer, who gave their lives, they were murdered, during the Freedom Rides in an attempt to make our country more just. Or white anti-apartheid activists like Donald Woods and Helen Sussman. Just as research has shown us, that minority students often perform better when presented with examples of people who look like them who have gone on to succeed in academic and professional fields, I'm starting to understand that affluent white students become more open to fighting injustice when they've seen other examples of white people who have done it. We've had some wonderful stories work their way into the curriculum from writers of a variety of different racial and cultural backgrounds, yet often the white characters in those stories tend to be unilaterally villainous. Now, I'm not saying the problem is that that's an unrealistic portrayal. Villainy like some of those characters perpetrate is unfortunately all too real. But in too many of those stories, those characters' privilege is uncomplicated. In other words, I can't necessarily blame my students entirely. If they were to be magically given the chance to be transported into one of those stories, they might choose to inhabit one of the white characters despite their villainy, simply because their lot in life looks so much more comfortable. So what if we make the case that some kinds of comfort can hurt you? See, if the bagel part of suburban education reform is showing examples of white allies, here's the other part, the orange juice. And that is showing examples of how privilege can hurt people who have it. Like many whites, I've been raised in a segregated world. And I'm slowly coming to see how that has hurt me every time I find myself bumbling in my attempts to connect with colleagues or students of color. And how hard I have to try and keep on working and trying to get better at that. I hope the fact that my own children attend a comparatively diverse urban public school makes them better people. But it's also a self-interested, strategic move. I want them to be better prepared than I ever was to take advantage of a world that's growing more diverse by the day. And then there's the simple self-interested part of, of giving up privilege and that holding on to it can turn you into a jerk. The kind of jerk that lets a clerk take you ahead in line when there's a person of color right in front of you. Or that lets me over-talk a woman and get away with it usually because gender norms allow for that. Holding on to privilege can turn you into someone you don't want to be. That's why I love working with my students with stories like George Orwell's Shooting an Elephant, whose protagonist is a British colonial officer in the Raj, um, who actually hates imperialism, and yet finds himself perpetrating acts of cruelty because he feels forced, forced that is, by 
his need to appear as somebody in power. And by the end of the story, he concludes that when the white man turns tyrant, it is his own freedom he destroys. And a way in which I try and help my students access that story is I ask them to think of a time when being a babysitter or a camp counselor might have turned them into the very kind of authoritarian figure that they hate. It's not a perfect parallel, I understand that, but it's an on-ramp, it's a beginning. Another text I love using is South African writer Athol Fugard's Master Harold in the Boys, uh, whose protagonist, Hallie, is a white teenager with whom many of my students can easily identify. Hallie hates the racially unjust apartheid system, and yet, when his domineering father begins to oppress him, he turns around and heaps unforgivable abuse upon the two black men who have raised him. He knows they can't fight back without facing terrible consequences. But the terrible consequence that Hallie brings upon himself is that he alienates the only two people who have loved him. Now I ask my students, would you want the kind of superpower that would let you make the people who love you vanish at the snap of a finger? Not many of them seem to uh, want to take me up on that offer. Sometimes I ask my students to look around at their largely white classmates and ask themselves, what are you missing out on by not having more people of color in this classroom? And what can we do about that? For a crowd that's very concerned with college admissions, the thought that having a paucity of experience with diversity to talk about in their college applications process might hurt them does give them pause. Or I'll ask, what are we missing out on learning? What are you missing out on learning? By the fact that we have no African-American teachers on our faculty outside of the health and fitness department. And does the fact that our last African-American teacher on the academic faculty nearly got arrested while trying to enter his own house in this community have something to do about that? And what can we do about this? Something I've done with some wonderful colleagues is to create the GLOBE Consortium, which brings together majority-minority students from Boston public schools with their white counterparts in the suburbs. Not around any explicit curriculum and diversity work, but just around good standards-based education lessons in green technology and environmental engineering. And as the students work together to solve those environmental engineering challenges, they can't help but challenge some of the stereotypes they've arrived with about the other students in that class. And often they go on long after the class is over to continue to try and push those boundaries and get to know and work with people from the other side because they've seen what they've been able to accomplish together. So here's what I propose we try and accomplish in suburban education reform. Engaging students in an exploration of how privilege hurts all of us, even those of us who benefit from it. Paulo Freire said that true justice liberates the oppressor as well as the oppressed. I treasure the memory of a white student who, for a project in my class, chose to attend the Black Lives Matter march. She came back and reported there was one moment during that march when the police began to close menacingly in upon the crowd, and one of the organizers shouted, white allies to the front. And there was my student, holding hands in a circle with other well-dressed white people, protecting the marchers in the middle. Now, she wasn't using her privilege to seize the microphone. She wasn't using her privilege to take over. She was using it to keep lines of communication open for others to use their voice. She came back, this shy student of mine, more confident and empowered than I had ever seen her before. And I've seldom been so proud. So many of my students come to high school already possessing the skills to write effectively or to score well on tests. They don't need me for that. 
What they need a teacher for, more often than not, is to help them see some meaning in what they're doing in this building every day. Beyond just, I've got to get good grades, to get to a good college, to get a good job, because that's the script I've been slogging through my entire life. Looking at social justice might not necessarily turn them into world changers, but it just might help them see some purpose in education. And that's important. But I do believe in the power of even small acts to make the world more just, because I've been their beneficiary too. When I first began working at this school, we didn't hold classes on the Jewish high holidays, but eventually a faculty meeting was convened to debate the merits of changing that policy. Now, I kept largely quiet. I didn't have it in me to be the Jewish Avenger that day, except to propose that the name of the motion on the floor, which was Elimination of Religious Holidays, be renamed to reflect what it really was, Elimination of Jewish Religious Holidays. I mean, after all, nobody was putting Christmas on the chopping block. No sooner did I say that than a colleague of mine rose to his feet, face red with the same kind of anger I recognized all too well from my students, and said, oh, come on, Christmas is an American holiday. Now, I didn't feel like rising to the bait. But then something remarkable happened. A Christian colleague of mine stood up and said, excuse me, I find that remark offensive. What about our Greek colleagues? They celebrate Christmas in January. What about our Latino colleagues with Three Kings Day? Who are you to say whose holidays deserve to be called American and whose don't? Now, I don't remember what the final vote tally was, but I will always remember that colleague because he could have stayed in his comfort zone, but instead he decided to give up that privilege and stand up, and when he spoke, suddenly this became more than just a Jewish issue. It became an issue that affected the entire community, for which everyone was responsible and sovereign. Imagine a world like that. A world where people are willing to give up comfort and privilege because they know that injustice affects all of us. And there are concrete things they can do about it. But that world's not going to happen by itself. People aren't born knowing how to do that. They have to be taught. That's what I'm proposing for suburban education reform, without which I think any other attempt at education reform or social reform at all is only going to be addressing half the issue. It'll be challenging, like everything in education is challenging. But don't give up on these kids. We can't afford to. Thank you. So there you have it. If you're interested now in finding out a lot more about the challenges of engaging affluent white students in social justice education, some research-backed strategies for doing so, and an argument for why the whole endeavor is worth doing, please get a copy, or more than one copy, of my book, What Does Injustice Have to Do With Me? Engaging Privileged White Students with Social Justice, published by Roman and Littlefield, available right now. Because remember, while actually doing the work of engaging privileged white students with social justice is pretty hard, Ordering the book about it is pretty easy, as easy as clicking a link on our podcast website at www.ed-infinitum.com. Okay, this self-salesmanship is tough, so I'm packing it in for the day. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. 
like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you get a treat. Today's education fun fact. Having visited Japan many times and even taught a little bit there, I can attest to the fact that Japanese schools do not have school cafeterias. Instead, students eat their lunches that they bring from home right there at the classroom. And, shockingly of all to an American audience, every time I've seen Japanese students eat their lunch in this manner, I've also seen them clean everything up themselves, spotlessly, without a teacher having to harass them. Bye now!